Good morning, church, once again. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing our study at the heart of Christ and looking at the heart of Christ. Um, but this morning we're going to take a little bit different approach to how I've traditionally been doing it as we've gone through this book and as we've looked at some different passages. But we're seven weeks in uh, to this study. We're seven weeks into looking at the heart of Christ. And I just pray that it is challenging you and the way that you think uh, about Christ and that your uh, heart is changing and that you are coming to see Christ for who Scripture says who, who He is. And, it, and it's not based on maybe your traditions and the way you grew up. Maybe it's uh, your old was based on you. Because as the author told us, our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. Right? That's our natural desire. That is why we need the Bible. That is why we need to study the Bible so that we can truly know God. That we can experience God's love. That we can know and understand much past the, the mental but into the um, knowing with our whole heart God's heart and God's love. So I've been praying that for the church. Uh, I've also been praying that as we study the heart of Christ together, you're not only developing a deeper understanding of the heart of Christ, but you are experiencing the heart of Christ. And your heart and your life are being changed as we do this study. The purpose of this study is not to build up lots of information and to store our brains with information, but it's to be transformed. That's right, it's to be transformed into God. And we don't want to just know about God, we really want to know God. We don't want to just fill ourselves with spiritual information and not do anything with it. If you are a Christian who knows the love of God, that should be really, really uncomfortable for you. That should be really, really uncomfortable to store up that uh, knowledge and not let it come through your life. When we experience the heart of Christ, his heart not only fills our heart, but it flows through us. Right? It manifests itself in us and then it comes out us. And last week we looked at the Holy Spirit filling us and allowing us to experience the heart of Christ for ourselves and then impacting our community. I want to back up this morning right? because sometimes I find myself looking at the outcomes, looking at the symptoms, looking at the works. I look at my community, I look at the things that I'm doing, and I'm really not paying attention to the root issue. I stop looking at my heart, and I'm just worried about the things going on around me. And what I'm saying is that sometimes I find myself trying to artificially create God's love working through me. I get it in my mind that if I am experiencing God's heart, then I love reading the Bible. Right? I love praying. I love sharing Jesus. I find joy in giving and serving. And in doing these things, they become the focus. And those are the things that I start doing. I start focusing on maybe reading the Bible. I start focusing on praying, but I have stopped focusing on seeking and knowing God. That I have made his heart a second thing, and I've just gone after the works. And I find myself that while I'm doing those things, I don't love doing those things. And when I take an honest look at my heart, I find it's because I've veered from seeking God's heart. I've been focused on the outcomes and not on seeking God's heart, not on the road to understanding God for who he truly is. And the question I have for you is, have you ever been there yourself? Have you ever just been 
going through the motions and saying, man, I think I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing, but something just does not feel right. And so today I want to look at a couple road signs that help us make sure that we're on the right path to experiencing God's heart. Today I'm going to zoom in on our own lives and we're going to look at some of the things in our own lives. I want to dial it in a little bit. I want to zoom in the focus, see what happens to us, how our heart changes, what we do when we come face to face with God's love. When we are experiencing the heart of Christ, what are the things that we should see in our lives? What are the road signs that we should see in our life if we are truly experiencing the heart of God? And I think the best way to do this is to look at Scripture. Look at people in the Bible who have experienced the heart of Christ for themselves. And so, as we will see, that they each experience God's heart in their own unique way. They each experience God's heart in their own unique circumstances. But as we look at their situations, we'll see that there's a common theme in their lives. And in the lives of those that they are leading to a true understanding of God's heart. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to start in Exodus 34. So go ahead and turn your Bibles there. And what we'll see is that this is a fundamental confessional statement of God's character. Of who God is. Of God's heart. And it's found in the Old Testament. It testifies to the true heart of God. We'll see that this passage is referenced over 20 times in the Old Testament itself. And some argue that it's indirectly referenced another 30 times throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, this passage that we're going to look at is found in all the books. It's found in the books of the law, the books of wisdom, the historical books, the prophetic books. And in the New Testament, this passage is referenced by Paul. It's referenced by James. It's referenced by John. And some have argued that this passage that we're going to be looking at today was what was on Jesus' mind when he said his heart was gentle and lowly. This passage in Exodus is a concise summary of the heart of God. But before we look at how people responded to the understanding of God's heart, let's look at this passage and let's read it together. And we'll find ourselves here in Exodus 34. God has descended down on the mountain. Moses is standing there waiting for God and God proclaims his name. He declares his character and he describes his heart. And we'll find in Exodus 34, beginning in 6, this is the Lord speaking. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Sounds a lot like gentle and lowly. Right? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving inequity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so when we look at that, we see that the Lord's heart is completely merciful. It is completely gracious. It is slow to anger. Right? The God, God's heart and his heart, he has a desire to forgive. And then we also see by reading that passage that God is perfectly just. To those in need, God is merciful and gracious. To those who are rebellious, God is slow to anger. To the guilty, God is forgiving. And to the unrepentant, 
God is just. The understanding of God's heart leads his people to two things, as we'll see. It leads them to repentance, and then it leads them to worship. But not once, or not twice, or not during some certain event, but we see that they have a life of repentance and a life of worship. Repentance that just continues from day to day and worship that never ceases. We don't have time to go through all 20 of the passages and look at the response of these people and how they experienced God's heart, but we're going to take five individuals and we're going to summarize and look at these five individuals and their response to God's heart. And I think the best place to start is Moses. That's who God was talking to when we read this passage. And we know that at this point, God has rescued the Israelites from Egypt. He's taken them uh, to the wilderness. He's fed them from heaven. And Moses goes up on the hill to get the commands of how they're going to worship and what the tabernacle will look like. That's going to take some time. God's telling his people how to be holy. And Moses is up there and they're writing on the stones. And as they're doing that, the Israelites, they get impatient. So they created an idol, right? And literally, as they are looking at the mountain and seeing God's presence, they create their own gods. They create false gods, and they start worshiping them. And God says, you know what? I'm done with you people. And he tells Moses, these are not my people. These are stiff-necked people. We're going to wipe them all out and start again. And Moses begs and intercedes for his people. And then Moses goes down the hill, and he sees his people worshiping and celebrating and, and, and worshiping these fake gods. And Moses says, all right, God, you're right. <laughs> you know, you win. Let's get rid of them. And then God reminds Moses, hey, this isn't about you. This isn't about your people. This is about me and my glory. So here's what we're going to do. And they did, um, I'm not going to lie to you, a lot of people died. God put a plague on the people. He sends Moses back up the hill and says, hey, let's try this again. And so Moses goes back up to the hill. And you can just imagine Moses' heart right now as he's thinking of his people and how they've turned their back on God. And you can think of Moses' heart as he is frustrated, as he is anger. He's done with those people. And before the Lord gives him the commandments again and describes to him how they're going to worship, how they're going to be set as holy, God starts off with this passage. And God declares his heart. And the Lord said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then we see uh, what happened with Moses when God shares his heart with him. If you read the next verse, you see Moses' response. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. At the first mention of what became this confessional statement found throughout the Old Testament, Moses heard it. His heart of anger, his heart of frustration was calmed by the grace of God, and Moses worshiped. As his heart was filled with the shame and the anger of his people, at the look at God's heart, at hearing God's heart, at knowing God's heart, God's grace wiped that all out, and Moses worshiped. We also know that many of the Psalms, right, we know that the Psalms was the hymn book of the the Israelites. It was filled with worship, worshiping God and based off of God's heart. And David, who wrote many of the Psalms, repeats the statement found in, in Exodus 34 through many of his Psalms, through many of his praises. 
We see the first one in Psalms 86, and it's a lament about God's steadfast character. And it leads David to worship in the middle of his crying out for help. In verse 5, David writes, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And we know that it, uh, Psalms 86, it's a lament. It means David is crying out, I am needy, I need help. This is horrible. God, why are you doing this to me? All these things. And then he remembers God's heart. And after verse 5, after following that confession, David's lament turns to worship as he remembers God's heart. The following verses after verse 5, they turn into a song of worship as David begins to offer up praise to his God. This has caused a whole bunch of theologians and and Bible scholars problems because they don't know if Psalm 86 is a lament or if it's a song of worship. And I saw one pastor who just referred to it. It is worshiping through lamenting because you can't reconcile what it is. But we see that it starts off as this powerful lament and it turns to worship when David sees God's heart. As David is crying out to God, he's reminded of the true heart of God and it leads him to repent. And as I've said, his lament turns to worship. What began as a cry for help, I am poor and I'm needy and preserve my life, ended with worship as David came face to face with God's heart. David sings out, I will glorify your name for great is your steadfast love toward me and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Again, in 103, we see that this is a hymn of praise that David wrote. David celebrates the abounding goodness and steadfast love of the Lord of his people that is declared in Exodus 34. God's enduring love towards the faithful leads the faithful to worship. And we see that in Psalms 103. Let's look at one more of David's Psalms. It's actually Psalm 145. It is the last Psalm of David. But it begins... The final section of Psalms, which is a section of praise. This is a section of hymns that praise the Psalms, that, that, that praise God in the, in the Psalms. This hymn is built around God's goodness and his righteousness. In verse 8, we see the heart of this verse, and it says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Does that verse sound familiar? Almost directly from the words of God, led David to repent and to worship and clearly we see throughout David's life and throughout his psalms that experiencing the heart of God led David to a life of worship he didn't just worship one day a week he didn't just worship when he won a battle but David had a life of worship his entire life next person I want to look at is if we look at Nehemiah we often think of him building the wall around Jerusalem yes God enabled him to build a wall and a physical wall, and that's important, but it's not the most important part of the story of Nehemiah. The most important part is God rebuilding the life of the Israelites that had turned their back on God, and now they were coming together. They had turned their back. They had gone to, to Babylon. They have now been worshiping other gods. And when the wall was built, Nehemiah led the longest recorded prayer in all of Scripture. Right before he does that, the wall is being built Uh, Ezra the priest gathers all the people and they start reading the law they start going back to who God is they start going back to his heart they start confessing their sins they start repenting and then Nehemiah leads them in a prayer and as they repenting they will trust that they will find mercy and be forgiven 
because they have experienced the heart of God in worship and they know who their God is. They know that their God is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And as Nehemiah is praying and talking to his people, he's encouraging them, yeah, we screwed up. We were really, really bad. We did some bad things. We turned our back on God. And he cites this verse. He quotes Psalms 34, 6. And he reminds his people, yeah, we, we screwed up, but look what our fathers did. Right? Our generations before us, they got manna from heaven. God fed them. And they went and complained to the chef that the food wasn't good enough. Now, we haven't screwed up that bad. Our God will forgive us. Our God can forgive us, and he will because he is abounding in steadfast love. And in another character we see is Joel. And in the book of Joel, we find people repent again because of God is gracious and he's merciful and he's slow to anger. Through Israel's, though Israel's sin is never revealed in this book, we know that it's because of uh, Exodus 34, 6. And it's because of God's unchanging character and his faithfulness that is described in that passage. That that is the grounds for Joel to lead the Israelites to repentance. Because God is grace, gracious and merciful. And one last example that I want to look at this morning. And this is one of my favorite examples. It's probably one I'm most familiar with because I think my life relates to him more than anybody else that we just talked about. And that's Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. God tells him to, to go to Nineveh and he runs away. And he finds himself in the belly of a fish. And while in the belly of that fish, he reflects on God's steadfast love. He reflects on God's steadfast faithfulness. And he thinks of the hope that is found in God's never-ending love and in his heart, which is slow to anger. And it leads him to repent. And right there in the, the belly, he starts to worship and he turns his eyes back towards God's holy temple. He turns his eyes back to God and says, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to stop running away. And he worships God. And scripture says he worships God with a voice of thanksgiving. And as he was praying and repenting and worshiping, he was remembering the verse found in Exodus 34, 6. However, however, there's always a however with Jonah. In chapter 4, we see that Jonah became angry with God's steadfast love. That Jonah was bothered by his heart that was slow to anger. And I think that is with us. We love God's grace for us. But somehow we think that we can determine who God's grace is good for. And who God's grace is not good for. We start to become gatekeepers. On people that we think should have. Experience God's grace in their life. That there are people that are good enough or bad enough uh, that, that don't deserve the love of Christ. And here Jonah is, and he is so upset because he knows God's heart. And he knows that God's steadfast love and that he's slow to anger. And God knows that if the Ninevites come to know the heart of God, they will repent. And Jonah doesn't like them. Right? And Jonah doesn't want to repent. Jonah knows that one day they will be his brothers and sisters, and they're going to be up in heaven in the holy throne room, singing holy, holy, holy to God, and Jonah doesn't want them there. And so Jonah becomes angry because he knows the power of the heart of God. Too often we do that all the time. Too often we 
think uh, there's no hope for them or they're not good enough for God. And somehow our finite minds and our sinful hearts have convinced ourselves that we know who deserves to experience God's heart and who doesn't. In 2011, a friend of mine who worked for the FBI, he gave me this poster. And I, like a lot of other people, celebrated the death of this man. A man who encouraged the killing of Christians. A man who could never deserve to experience the heart of God. Someone who would never feel his forgiveness or taste his grace. Someone whose heart was so dark and calloused. Someone whose hatred of God was so evident in his life. Someone whose heart, when viewed by God, wasn't much different than mine. The truth is, the halls of heaven could be wallpapered with these posters, with my picture on it, with your picture on it, and God and all the heavenly beings that are up there would be perfectly just to celebrate our deaths. But God, right? But God, and Scripture tells us God's heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, which has led many of us to repentance, His grace and His love. And God will also use that same grace and that same love and that same forgiveness to lead others to repentance. Others that, as much as we'd hate to admit it, are much more like us than they are different from us. And his heart will lead them to repentance. For those of us that have experienced the heart of God, we know no one is outside his grasp. And sometimes God's steadfast love and forgiveness bothers our sinful hearts. Why would God love them? How could God love them? Why would he do that? Because he loves perfectly. As we look at the lives of these people, do we see our lives impacted the same way that it impacted those people in the Bible? Has his heart led you to repentance? Have you experienced the grace and the forgiveness and the love of God and has it brought you to repentance? And when I talk about repentance, I'm talking about two types. One, first of all, is the repentance that is once for all time. Simply put, you have acknowledged the holiness of God, and you have acknowledged the sinfulness of yourself. You've turned from God, and much like David, you have pleaded that you are poor and you're needy in spirit, that you know that God's ways are greater than your ways, that you know that God needs to breathe life into your lungs. You know that you are unable to do anything without God in your life. But you also know that through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, of God's own son, that all of your sins are paid for. That God has given you a way that you can be forgiven, you can walk in newness of life, that you can join the heavenly bodies in worshiping God. And some of you hear this and say, there's no way. Like, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You're 100% right. I don't know your past. I don't know what you've done. But I do know Scripture, and I know that there's a promise in Scripture. In Second Chronicles, it says this, The Lord is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you repent. 
So I don't care what your past is. I don't care what your history is. I don't care what you've done. I fully believe scripture. And scripture says that God is graceful, gracious and merciful. And he will forgive you if you repent. And when you have turned from following yourself. Right, and you've turned your eyes back to the holy temple of God. When you've turned your gaze to the cross. And you are following him. That means you've repented. Right? It means you simply just turned around, repented. You've heard this a million times. It's like a, a military term for an about face. And so I went from following myself and I repented and now I am following God. And if you have done that, you have repented. And that is a one time, once and for all, Jesus on the cross said it was finished. And that is the one time. And if you have done that, you have experienced the heart of God. You have tasted the grace of God in your life. But there's another type of repentance there's a lifestyle of repentance we call this the spirit of repentance and do you find yourself repenting all the time right we're repenting all the time for that one time and you think what is that one time well maybe it's that one time that you didn't love God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind maybe it's that one time that you didn't love your neighbor as yourself Maybe it's that one time that you didn't love your spouse as, God, as Christ loves the church. Maybe it's that one time that your tongue lit a fire with gossip. Maybe it's that one time you refused to forgive that person. Maybe it's that one time you allowed lust to just dance in your mind over and over and over again. Maybe it's that one time that you handled his word with carelessness. This is just something I need to get through the day so I can check a box. Maybe it's that one time that you held on bitterness towards your Christian brother and sister. Right? Maybe it's that one time that you thought the bride of Christ, that you thought the church was irrelevant for your life. That you didn't need the church. In church, this is where we start talking to Christians. This is, we start talking to people who have been in a church a long, long, long time. This is something that as a pastor breaks my heart, and I hear it way too often. Maybe it's that one time that you became bored with the gospel. Right? The gospel doesn't mean anything to you anymore. It's just another word. And you've lost sight of what the gospel means to you. You've lost sight of who God is in the gospel and who you are in the gospel. Maybe it's that one time that you took God's grace for granted. You ever get tired of hearing the word grace, 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 grace? It's a church word. It doesn't mean anything more. I'm tired of hearing that word. Right? You forgot that that is the life-giving word. It is, breathes life into your soul. It is the, the word that means that God saved us from the death that we deserved and has allowed us to spend eternity in the glory of Almighty. Church, if your heart does not dance for joy at the mere mention of his grace, if you don't hear the, the gospel and a smile come to your face, you probably need to repent. And as we talk about these one times in our lives, it's not hard to see that those one times start taking up almost every second in our life. Those one times turned into hours. Those one times turned into days. And we start figuring out and we start looking at those things that that one time probably happened five minutes ago. That one time happened early this morning. That one time happened last night and we start repenting and repenting and repenting. And for those of us that have experienced the heart of God, we live a life of continuous repentance. 
Right? We have repented that one time for all time, and then we have repented at all times for that one time that just keeps coming up, keeps coming up. And do you look at your own life, and do you see that you have the spirit of repentance in your own life? Do you see as you walk through life, you have a discernible spirit of repentance? That I remember who God is, and I remember who I am. And do we have a contrite heart that worships the Almighty? But here's the beauty of that. And sometimes we talk about repentance, repentance, repentance. Oh, woe me, woe me, I'm such a bad guy. But a heart that has experienced the love of Christ doesn't stop at repentance. It goes to worship. And we see that these lives are filled with joy as they realize who God is. And they sit there and they worship and they worship and they worship. And worship is the true sign of someone who is experiencing the heart of God. Worship is the overflow of knowing God's love. And too often people try to create these things or these situations in their life to show that they have been impacted by the heart of Christ. Right? We see some of these people, they serve at church and sometimes they just attend church simply as spectators. Right? They give out of their own goodness and they tell others about Jesus so they don't feel so bad. They tell others about Jesus so they can tell other people that they told people about Jesus. Sometimes they just tolerate other people. Sometimes they just go on a mission trip. Maybe they go on two mission trips. And I love what Pastor John Piper wrote about missions. He reminds us that missions is not God's ultimate goal. Worship is. Worship. When we are in heaven, guess what we won't be on? We will not be on a mission trip. Right? We will not be raising money to go on a mission trip. We will not be raising money to go tell people about Jesus. We will be worshiping for all of eternity. And for someone who knows God, who has experienced the heart of Christ, their entire life is an act of worship. Right? We serve out of an act of worship. We fellowship with other believers as an act of worship to our God. We give as an act of worship. We proclaim the name of Jesus as an act of worship. We are so excited because we know the gospel. We know God's grace. And really, we can't hide it. Right? We, we bite into a great steak. We tell everybody about it. Right? When we have experienced the goodness of God's grace, we tell people about it as an act of worship about how good he is. Right? We make disciples wherever we go. Whether we go to our own grocery store or whether we go to a marketplace in a third world country, it doesn't matter. When we've experienced the love of Christ, it flows through us and we make disciples as an act of worship. Church, God has a history of taking those who have experienced his heart and using those people to change the world. He did it with the Israelites. He did it with the disciples. And he's doing it with his church today. And how could God change his city, his state, his country? Think about what he could do if Calvary Church was a church that had a discernible spirit of repentance, that we knew who God is and that we knew who we were and that we worshiped God every day of our lives. I mean, just look around this room. Look what God did with 12 people who did that. What could he do with this church? Right? How could we affect, I'm, I'm not talking about West Hills, I'm not even talking about LA. Right? How could he affect California? How could he affect the nation? How could he affect the world? If we started 
experiencing and living our lives as a group of people who know the love of Christ. What if we used our worship to show people the glory of God? And when I talk about worship, I'm, I'm not talking about the time that we sing together in this building. Not to minimize that worship, the time that we sing together in this building is strictly an overflow of our worship through the rest of the week. If you come here on Sunday mornings, and this is the only time you worship, I'm going to be the bearer of bad news, you're probably not worshiping at all. Right? You're trying to manifest some type of thing, but you are not worshiping if this is the only time in seven days that you worship is for 20 minutes in this church service. You are just kidding yourself. Right, somebody who has experienced the love of God, they are worshiping all week. Right? And they come here on Sunday mornings, and we come here with our brothers and sisters, and we sing, and we worship, and we praise God. Right? I'm a horrible singer, and everybody around me doesn't even know because we're just worshiping. If you notice that I'm a bad singer, you shouldn't be focusing on me. That's not what worship's about. Right? We should be, I'm talking to my wife right there. That was an underlevel code to my wife. She loves my singing at home. But that worship is so sweet when we've been worshiping all week. And we get here with our brothers and sisters. And that worship overflows in our lives and overflows through us. And we worship together. But that's not the type of worship I'm talking about. Right? I'm talking about what if we lived a life of worship Due to his merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness heart. And that led us to repentance and worship. That took us to worship that began with our repentance. And it's evident in our lives that we know the heart of God. That we have experienced the heart of God. And God used that relationship to show our community his glory. Think about the impact. Think about how God could use this church if we lived our lives as someone experiencing the heart of God with a spirit of discernment and a life of worship. Dear Heavenly Father, we just take this minute to just stop. As we think through all the things that are going through our heads, all the things that we've got to do and all the things that are going on today, tomorrow, and the next day. Lord, we just pray you would just grab our hearts. That you would draw us back to you. That our hearts would be focused on you. That our hearts would be focused on the gospel and your glory. Lord, for some of us, we would just pray that you would take us back to that grace. Remind us of how sweet it is. That you would return us to the joy of our salvation. And we would just worship you. We wouldn't worry about anything else, but we would just lift your name up and worship you. Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to follow your heart. Lord, we, we pray that you would just take our heart and transform it inside out, and that when we went out into our communities, when we went out into our world, people would say, wow, I want what they have. And they wouldn't have to even ask us, because we would freely proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, and we would speak of his hope and his glory to those around us. Lord, we love you and, and we thank you. And we would just pray as we sing this song together that our hearts would be united as one and that we would praise you and worship you together as a local body of believers. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.